If you're hearing my voice right now, you are listening to Wolf in Tune, and I am Richard Wolfie Wolf. It's great to be back. I'm sorry we were gone for quite a while because I was indulging in a meditation retreat, which I have no regrets about. It's quite the opposite. But here we're back again, and we have uh, a fantastic special guest. So this was really worth waiting for. We've had multiple attempts to get together, but uh, my guest is so in demand, it's hard to get a hold of him. And I want to introduce him right now. He is Dr. Dr. A.Z.A. Olsop. And if you heard me say Dr. Doctor, you didn't mishear it. That's exactly what I said, because he's a double doctor. He's also a PhD as well as an MD. And usually, you know, I don't like to give long intros because it's kind of boring, but what we have to say about Dr. Dr. Alsop is really unique. He is a first-generation American who grew up in Trinidad, and he carried out his PhD training in neuroscience at MIT as part of the Harvard Medical School slash MIT. That's so it's two schools, Harvard and MIT, PhD MD program. And he was a scholar at the Berkeley College School of Music. Aha. Uh-huh. The plot thickens, you see. He's a not only neuroscience PhD, but also in music. He studies how social information is computed, integrated, and biased in the brain. Yes, we are all biased. And how music, mindfulness, and psychedelics change social behavior. His research is guided by the belief that deconstructing these mechanisms will provide a better understanding of how social groups function and offer insights into enhancing the evolution of society at large. He currently performs his research and provides clinical care in the Department of Psychiatry at Yale University and continues to create and perform music rooted in the energy of the African diaspora. And I would say please welcome but there's nobody to ask to please welcome. So <laughs> I just want to, I welcome Dr. Olsop to the Wolf and Tune podcast. Thank you so much for coming. I really, really appreciate you creating the space for me to be here. And it's it's been a long time coming. So uh, I'm really glad that we have this opportunity. Thank you so much. And um, did you go to the uh, clinic today? Because last time we spoke, yeah, just saved five people's lives. You're, you're, <laughs> you're in the ER, right, at, at Yale University uh, the Medical yeah. Facility. Yeah, that's that's one of the that's one of the contexts in which um, we deliver care um, as residents. Uh, I also have kind of an outpatient practice at at the VA this year as well. Oh, um, but today I wasn't. Uh, today I wasn't in the clinic. Today was more sort of a research based day. Well, I would say, I don't know if in your case, or it's probably in your case, it's a great thing that you can practice what you do in terms of mindfulness and meditation to deal with the incredible stress. I don't know how people do that. So you do meditate. Not only do you meditate and practice mindfulness, but you teach it. How did you start your practice of meditation? What was the style you used? What was the, the goal or the motivation or the intention at the time? Yeah. Um, so it started in, in graduate school. Kind of just looking for different ways to to relieve stress and i also knew that it had sort of a spiritual component to it and i grew up in a very spiritual background my dad's you know Seventh-day adventist minister and things like that so i was always really trying to explore different paths um my ex-wife at that time was also starting to like look into buddhism and sh- and kind of explore some of that and i was trying to really understand you know the direction she was going in and so 
that led me to start to study some of those things. Um, but it wasn't until I did um, a Vipassana silent retreat, which was really immersive and, um, and transformative that I really began to see sort of the power that um, meditation had for really opening up a view and a perspective on reality and how one experiences it and, and really start to develop that practice. And, and now it's, it's become like a very sort of consistent core part of my life. So Vipassana means mindfulness, although I think the technical term I've heard is insight, insight. but when people, right, insight. But I think when people refer to Vipassana, they're talking about mindfulness, essentially, right? In, in a sense, I think, you know, the sort of the, the, the core practice really focuses around being able to notice the breath, being equanimous with the different sensations and thoughts and things that arise and not sort of getting too drawn into the stream of thought um, and kind of always this practice of bringing the attention back. And then there's also a component that focuses on uh, on the body and, and realizing how different sensations arise and fade away in the body. Um, and I, again, I, I found it really sort of, again, insightful in terms of just beginning to understand the whole machinery of experience and how we can better and optimally navigate our experiences. You know, and so that that really is a core part of it. But since then, I've also kind of gotten into a lot of different, you know, I've been inspired by Zen. Um, I, I, you know, became a yoga teacher and explored a lot of different, you know, I think perspectives on 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 um, how we can better understand ourselves and, and what we're doing in, in this experience. Right. I'm looking forward to getting into the Zen with you uh, a little later on, because I know we could we could dive deep into that. But could you give us some techniques that you use, uh, mindfulness techniques specifically, that you use on a day-to-day basis or in a mundane uh, circumstance? Yeah. So I like to make a distinction between meditation and mindfulness and that meditation is like the practice of like actually sitting down and either focusing on the breath or different objects, whereas mindfulness is sort of the lived the lived practice of meditation, how do I actually move through the world in a way that that has a certain sort of awareness and attention? For me, that shows up the most now. Um, it's sort of being very aware of how different thought streams tend to pull one into this like egoic personal sense of self. And so mindfulness for me really looks at being aware of how different stimuli, different things that are happening in the environment are driving certain sensations in my body, driving certain thought patterns, and noticing when I start getting caught into that flow of a certain uh, story that my mind is presenting to myself about whatever it is I'm experiencing. And just being able to take a step back and, again, sit with the sensation. Okay, I'm feeling something in my body. What is that? Be curious about that. My thoughts are telling me this thing. How valid is that? You know. And so that's a lot of how mindfulness looks like for me. Um, I think it can also look like being very aware of the breath, kind of bringing one's attention to the breath and, you know, doing certain breathing activities and yoga, we call it pranayama, where you begin to notice that the mind and the breath are actually very interrelated. And when the mind does certain things, the breath starts to do something, certain things. And the converse of that is true too. If I can control my breath in a certain way, it kind of begins to constrain the mind and force it to do a certain thing as well. So that's another kind of technique that, that is, is helpful. It's all true, and I especially love when you say, uh, well, I have this thought about what's happening, and I ask, is that valid? Mm -hmm. 
And it's the uh, the don't know mind, right? I think when people think of mindfulness, it's what you know and how you know it. You know, mm-hmm. you know what's happening while it's happening in a way that's non-judgmental. You know, just observing in a, as you say, in equanimous manner with a critical distance mm-hmm. between the stimuli and the response. But the questioning of, okay, so this is my perception, and to know that you don't know. So it's it's not only what you know, but it's to know that you don't know uh, in mindfulness. So you mentioned also connecting with your breath, and I remember you telling a story about how you were in a movie theater, I think maybe with your parents, and uh, how you had a panic attack. Yeah, yeah. I was actually, I was, I was with my ex-wife and my two children. We were watching, I think it might have been Avengers. Right. Sorry, I got that. Sorry, I got that wrong. Yeah. It was your, mm-hmm. your, okay, Yeah. sorry. But we were watching Avengers, actually, and I'm sitting there and, you know, I start to feel this. And this was a, a period of time where, like, panic attacks had just started to happen for me and started feeling, like, this huge pressure in my chest and, you know, started to to feel the anxiety that usually goes with that and had to really again, call upon these tools and resources to say, okay, like, this is what's happening. This is what I feel right now. I'm, I'm not going to die. It's a panic attack. Just sit here. It will pass, like, all of the sensations. And, you know, I didn't want to freak, like, my children out or anything like that. So I'm just sitting there watching the movie. And, you know, as, as all sensations, after a while, it passed away. But it, it really gave me a lot of insight to, you know, the humans that I work with because I think um, if you don't have a certain framework or certain tools or certain experiences prior to that, it can be a very terrifying thing and you might not have any resources to deal with that. Um, And so, you know, over time, obviously, as I began to actually bridge that gap between just having a meditation practice and actually being able to take the skills that that practice develops and transfer to my my actual life, I stopped having panic attacks and, and was able to kind of achieve sort of a healed state of wellness. But that was definitely an experience that that I think was very memorable for me. Um, and one of the times that I really had to call on sort of some of these practices of being able to like become very aware of sensations without judgment and and practice some of that equanimity, you know, in, in the moment. Yeah, that is so true about the beautiful gift of mindfulness. It's meditation in action. You can apply it to your life. Yeah. And, and uh you know, I like the analogy of that meditation is practicing your instrument, let's say, as a musician. You know, it's you and solitary, the solitary time you spent with your intimate relationship with your instrument. Or if you're in a band, you're rehearsing, and it's the communication you have with the members of the band, and you're yeah. rehearsing what to do, developing skills, training. And then that's meditation. At least it's some of what meditation yeah. is. Yeah. And then you go out on the world stage and you perform what you've been practicing and rehearsing in private, and that's mindfulness. Yeah. And that's the beauty of it. And I'm wondering, in your case, then I similarly had a panic attack, and the one that took me to the ER, I didn't know what was happening. I didn't have a meditation practice or a mindfulness practice, and I was prescribed meditation (laughs) as therapy. And I'm wondering, in my case, I can see panic starting. Like I, I can recognize it right away. Mm-hmm. I get a signal that my heart is starting to, to race and you know to, to speed up a little bit. And I'm able to acknowledge it, recognize it, and calm it down. Yeah. 
using bre- breathing techniques and also just the fact that I know what's going on. It's not the unknown. Mm-hmm. And that makes a big difference when you know, okay, I know what's happening. You're not fooling me. I know you're not going to kill me. I know exactly what's <laughs> happening. I'm wondering if in your case, you've had similar things, like even after that big panic attack, did, did you see other ones coming? And did, does it still happen that the panic still can arise, but you can deal with it, tolerate it? Yeah, I think, you know, one of uh, two things I think about this, this uh, and, our, and our experiences one is that I think these tools are very helpful, but in the acute phase, you can really only marshal those resources if you've been doing the homework. And so if I don't do any meditation, I'm never doing any breath work or any practices, and then I try to use this to stop my panic attack, it's less likely to work than if I've actually been practicing in times when I was not having anything wrong and, and, and going on. So I think just mentioning that even though these tools can be used in acute settings to kind of curtail things like panic attacks, they really work best when it's a consistent practice that you can then call upon in the moment. Um, and for me, I think now it's, I, I don't get panic attacks anymore, but I can begin to feel when like I'm becoming more anxious or more, um, you know, the body has all these different ways of holding stress and holding tension. And I'm, I'm now very acutely aware long before it would ever even get to the point of like really full blown anxiety or panic attack that, okay, Right now, I'm actually holding a lot of tension or stress in my body. Why is that? Okay, there are certain thought patterns that are happening. I'm very future projected right now instead of dealing with the present. And so I can like work myself through that and so, so that I, I really cut things off very, very early in that yeah. process of like kind of getting caught into the egoic projection streams that kind of feed all of these, these symptoms. So do you have, um, I, I understand how it's an ongoing process mm-hmm. dealing with things that come up in mindfulness yeah in, in my case i have one thing i'm always doing is if i'm opening a door with keys mm-hmm. i will look at the keys and say i know i'm holding keys this is my mindfulness moment mm-hmm. to remind myself uh that i exist and i am awareness i have this awareness that transcends any thought at this moment i'm holding keys i'm going to open a door and I'm alive and I'm grateful to be alive. And I'm wondering if you have anything that you do that's like a private little ritual like that or, or a, a habit. Yeah, yeah. I like that. A lot of times what I do is really, in a similar way, I, I try to really call myself into the present and into awareness of my body. Like what is my body feeling or doing? I spent a lot of time really disconnected from my body that's part of where the panic attacks came from. Um, and so mm-hmm. I, I, I'm very intentional, like when I'm sitting with uh, a patient or like even in this in this podcast, like, okay, where are my feet? My feet are touching the floor, you know? Uh, my spine is like a little slouch, it's a straight. Like just always being aware of like, where's my body? And, and also like, where's my mind? Because a lot of times like our mind is so good at being in the future and the past. It really wants to avoid being in the present, but the present is the only place where you can really be free of thought and be in the moment. And so for me, it's always like just taking those checks and I'm very intentional. It's one of sort of one of the core things I do when I wake up, it's like, okay, I'm here and I'm going to be present and I'm going to be aware of my breathing and aware of my body. And throughout the day, I'm always trying to just bring myself back to that constantly, constantly be here right now, be in my body, 
don't be in the future, don't be in the past, be here. And so I'm always trying to remind myself of that. And, you know, you, you'll go, you know, a few hours where you're really caught up in, in some thought stream. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's a relative purpose for, for having a mind and its ability to do all these things. But I think the more that you can always just call yourself back to the truth, which is right now in the present, in the moment, um, it really transforms your experience and even the efficiency of what the mind is doing when it wants to do its projections and, you know, go back into the past. Hmm. Well, you did succeed in making me sit up straight. <laughs> and uh, I wish I had that. I wish I could carry you along on my shoulder to keep telling you <laughs> that because hey, I'm, I'm not, the, I can't keep reminding myself about certain things in the body. I wish I was like you and could do that. It's, I'm always slouching. Uh, and, and by the way, that's reminiscent of the fact that people shouldn't call it mindfulness alone. It should be called mindfulness, bodyfulness, mm. the way you're, so you're kind of endorsing that. Now let's, let's make a, a, a segue, as they say in music, to music. Yeah. You are a musician. That's very fundamental part of your character, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You play keyboards. Yeah. Play keyboards. Um, bass guitar, drums, and, and sing. You know, singing is definitely my first instrument. Um, and oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I grew up in a very musical family. Um, my dad's a multi-instrumentalist. My mom sings as well. Um, my two sisters sing. So, I, you know, I, I grew up, and again, growing up in the Black church as well, it's just like music is just such, as a, such a fundamental part of, of just my development um, and something that all throughout my college, I minored in jazz studies, was in, you know, jazz combo, the university choir, and even in med school and, and grad school, you know, always kept up with, with music and, you know, eventually got to the point where I felt um, confident and, and knew myself well enough to be able to start doing my own, you know, my own music and, and, and put that out there. And also you're a rapper too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So you've been practicing music your whole life. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you're like the way I was, until I had been doing music for decades and decades. You practice meditation, you practice mindfulness, and you practice music, and you don't see a relationship between them. It's like, I practice music, I practice yoga, I like baseball, you know, I like to go to the park, mm -hmm. I, you know, I collect stamps, and I meditate. It's just another thing I do, yeah. you know? And I wonder at what point did you see, okay, Wait a second. This there, there are bridges here. Yeah, there are connectors here. Mm -hmm. Was there a point where you had a revelation? Okay, there's a connection here between me as a musician and me as a meditator. Yeah, um, I would say it definitely was not one point. It was it was a gradual unfolding. I think the 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 relationship between music and mindfulness, in a sense, really started in the church, and that music as sort of a doorway or a portal to a certain state of being or a certain way of, of connecting. Um, but really, really crossing that bridge. And, and I mean, I, like now when I practice, it's very mindful. Like I'm breathing with the notes and I, I'm, I'm very much, you know, making those things uh, the same. Like, so my music practice for me now is a mindfulness practice. Um, but that's something that developed, you know, over the years. Um, one of the books I was really, um, instrumental in developing that understanding was by um, Kenny Werner. Um, and I, now that I just said, I, I forgot the, the name of it. Um, he wrote this book that basically talks about this idea of, of how do you kind of free 
the, the, the mind and the thought process from what you're, you know, what you're doing. And I think a lot of the greats, you know, even in jazz, like Coltrane talks about this, Herbie Hancock talks about this, where to really perform or, or express music at its highest level requires in some way for your mind to not be there and, and for it to be a very much mindful in the moment expression of, of truth as it's coming up, you know? Yeah, it's so true. I mean, I think Herbie specifically said, don't think when you're improvising, right? And, and what you discover in meditation is one of the bridges that, that I found mm -hmm. is that in music, you have embodied cognition. So yes. sometimes, if you, sometimes your body knows what notes to play before your mind knows what notes to play, right? And you have this experience of mind, body, feeling, soul, all being integrated, all being one experience. And that's a beautiful thing in music. It's just a natural thing that if you're into what you're doing, that you fall into. Yeah. And in meditation, when it's really deep and really working, it's the same thing. When you know something in meditation, you know it in your soul. You know your body knows it. Your whole body is an organ of awareness. Yeah. And it's going. That's going back to what you were saying before about you know being in touch. Except now your your awareness, your body, your emotions, everything are working together. It's like when you go outside and it's raining. Yeah. You know it's raining. I mean, your whole being knows that it's raining. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Same thing in meditation. Your whole being knows when it knows something, when it sees something, whether it's interconnectedness of all life. Yeah. Whatever it might be, you know this with your body, your mind, and your feeling. Yeah, and I think that concept, you know, it has really strong legs because that idea that there's sort of an innate intelligence within the body that can be expressed in the moment if we get out of our way a little bit extends even beyond music, you know? And I think bringing that into our everyday life and every moment, how, what is the body trying to express in this moment if I stay out of it? If I'm not trying to constrain the moment with like a specific thought about how it's supposed to go, or how I'm supposed to act or how I'm supposed to be, we can be really surprised that like what, can emerge out of that of the body's sort of natural intelligence uh oftentimes right so so harmony of mind body feeling and body cognition that's one of the the bridges that i also and you know you're familiar with the 12 bridges yep. that, that i talk about mm -hmm. in in tune music is the bridge to mindfulness it oh there it is he's holding up the book folks <laughs> who are not watching this but just hearing in the podcast i'm wondering if you relate it as you were going along and said, oh, okay, there's this relationship to any, any other of these bridges uh, or bridges either that you heard of or didn't hear of, or. I, like, like I, I, I told you, you know, I think so much of that, of the book in tune resonated with me on so many levels. Um, let's take, for instance, the bridge silence, you know, which <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's the bedrock, right. Of, of, of everything is silence. And when you, meditate you discover this if you go deeply go all the way then that's where you are you're in, you're you're in silence and there's there's something about that if you can tap into it that you know is very experiential so i'm not going to put try to put too many words or concepts on that but i think in the same way like i've always heard you know um people like um like Thelonious monk talks about this a lot where being very intentional about silence as even a part of your improvisation or a part of the expression and, and being deliberate about where you put space 
and allowing things to breathe so that when you do express something, it actually comes from a certain place of stillness. So that was one of the things, um, the idea of like transcending yourself. Um, like John Coltrane was trying to figure out, they say ways, like certain scales that he could play himself out of his body. And like when you are really deep into music and entrained sort of in a, an improvisation or something, you're not a self in that moment, right? There's no real egoic constraints on, on what's happening. And in the same way, when you, you know, you go into meditation and you go deeply into, in, in, into yourself, you know, you discover that there is no self in that sense. You know, again, not going to put too many words on that, but that was another bridge that, you know, um, really spoke to me. Even things like posture, which I think like as a kid, you know, and your piano teachers like sit up straight, put your hands in a specific way. And like all these things that it's kind of annoying at that time and takes for granted. But then as you begin to study things like yoga and learn how the actual physical representation of the body can do a lot for how the mind is working and how you're able to tap into certain states. I think, again, another bridge. So yeah, I, there are a lot of them that, that I think were just very easily for me, like resonated right away. Wow. That's truly music you just performed. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that blew my mind, you're talking about John Coltrane, which I'd never heard of. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Coltrane playing himself out of his body. Yeah. Wow. And 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 it was a certain scale that he he was. Yeah, I mean, you can, you can kind of hear like there's this searching, this striving that he's like. If you listen to Love Supreme, you know he's really trying to tap into something with these scales and certain ideas, certain notes that he keeps going into and like trying to work his way around them. And he's really searching for something. And, and, you know, they say this was one of the things he was really trying to search for. Like, what's the, what's the scale or the mode or like the right way to, you know, get to this certain state. And I think you can really, when you hear him playing, I think it really shines out on the love Supreme, but on, on other things too, but you can really hear that search and him trying to really tap into something um, that's really powerful. Yeah, they there is a, a church to, to devote it to John <laughs> Coltrane yeah, right? yeah. in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and I have some of their artwork which I I like uh, looking at. Yeah, yeah. You talk about silence and and Thelonious Monk, uh, who was a great, uh, not only a genius. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Miles Davis had told me the most important thing to remember about music is silence. And that really is uh, a certain sensibility that musicians have, the sensitivity to silence. That's so, such a nice uh, kind of a lever to help you elevate yourself to the place. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned Zen, and Zen it's called silent illumination, right? Um, and we've talked about this before. This is what, um, to put mindfulness in its place, in me- within meditation. Meditation is a spectrum, right? Or you could look at it as a big keyboard and it has all these different notes. Calmness, composure, clarity, compassion, gratitude, concentration. Well, maybe concentration is a few notes. Uh, mindfulness, kind of another few notes. And then it keeps going. Yeah. Right? And it, and it's the, these notes are all soundless. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I like and, that. And if you, when you play all the notes, 
then you're in a place possibly of silent illumination, what Zen would call, or uh, in Tibetan Buddhism, Rigpa, primordial luminosity, or Satchitananda, pure awareness, pure being, pure joy. Mm -hmm. So you're you're like going to the source of sound and silence. Yeah. And and mindfulness, it's so important and such a gift in our day-to-day life, but it's still dualistic. Yeah. There's still, right? There's still the observer and the observed. So there's a separation there. Yeah. There's, there's the knower and the known, the singer and the song. And and in, in silent illumination or in other non-dual awareness, there's no separation, right? There... There is separation on one level, but on the, the truest level, you know, okay, maybe you're a spectator, but uh, there's an empty stage in an empty theater, in an empty building, on an empty planet, in an empty universe where all there is is this light of luminous awareness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I love about talking to you is you're, you're this uh, academic and serious doctor <laughs> at Yale <laughs> And MIT and Harvard associations, and you're not afraid to get into the spiritual, the the the, the metaphysical. You're not afraid to talk about it, and yeah. uh, that's so inspiring. You know, for me, I think uh, spirituality is a search for what is true, like what is what is real about our existence and our experience. And I think when you look at all the different spiritual disciplines and you know, I, I have had a lot of grace in my life and I'm really grateful for like the family that I had. And just from a young age, being able to be given certain spiritual tools that I think, even though I, I don't, you know, particularly adhere to the tradition that I grew up in, um, I learned very early the importance of, of that search for truth and have had the opportunity to study a lot of different, you know, spiritual paths. And really all of them are trying to get to that, like the same place, right? And there's a saying like, you can... Um, you know, there are many paths up the mountain, but like from the top, you can see how all the paths lead up there. And so for me, it's, it's a search for truth. And I think science in its own way is a search for truth, but, and science and spirituality really, I don't separate because I think they're both trying to get an, of, uh, an understanding of the same thing. It's just that science has a certain dogma that can sometimes constrain it into um, this materialism that ultimately is is kind of illusory and elusive um and so for me the taking a a spiritual stance to understanding the brain and to understanding Mm -hmm. how these symptoms arise in in the the humans that i work with is i think how i ground myself in in reality um and so it becomes really important i think to to also be able to speak about that knowing that it's not something that everyone will agree with or even understand, but also knowing that many people haven't maybe done some of the work and, and tried some of the experiences that might also give them the opportunity to begin, you know, grasping some of these things. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. That's, that's beautiful. And frankly, it makes more sense than anything else. I mean... <laughs> I know it's not it's it's not universal in the scientific community, but there are some neuroscientists you hear that mm-hmm. that are, that admit what's called David Chalmers, the philosopher calls the hard problem. Yeah, hard problem of consciousness. Yeah, consciousness, right? It does, it doesn't emerge. How does it emerge from matter if you think that's what happens? Mm-hmm. You know, you mm-hmm. can't explain it. Science can't explain that. 
So it just as easily could be matter emerging from consciousness. Yeah, I mean, quantum physics says, right, that like at the most basic level of material that we can get to, right, um, these particles actually exist as probability waveforms and they only come sort of into existence as a particle when an observer tries to make a measurement. And so what is that telling us about like what we consider to be like the material world? You know, I think these are just really important questions to, to ask, especially in neuroscience where, um, you know, most of our models of how things work are not really based on quantum physics, which is as far, you know, as I can tell the sort of the frontier of what we understand the material world to be and, and what tries to describe the material world and in sort of its most basic and, and purest sense. So, you know, I think there's a lot of room for exploration and some of these ideas I think will gain more ground as human consciousness continues to evolve and we become more and more aware collectively of our true sort of nature. Yeah. And not only is the particle wave analogy beautiful and appropriate, I think, which you talked about, but I also love the idea that everything, the whole world, the universe, is a quantum field. Mm -hmm. And every phenomenon, every individual separate phenomenon is an excitation of that field. Yeah, I like that. That's what we are, right? Mm -hmm. We're just excitations expressions in one point, access points of, of this field, energy field of whatever, consciousness or beyond consciousness. So let's get to something you touched on, which is your work, yeah. your research work. Tell us about your mission, which I love so much. Yeah. You know, in, in my work as a psychiatrist, it's, it's really clear that people are suffering and they're suffering um, with lots of different symptoms that are related to the mind and how it's functioning and their emotions and stress. And many people in the community, particularly people of African descent and like black indigenous people of color generally, um, haven't really been given tools in their communities to deal with some of these things. And we have a current medical system that's set up such that like, if I need help, I need to come to you and there's a certain level of trust I have to have. And there's reasons for people in the community to not trust our system, right? So a lot of people aren't receiving care. And so the music mindfulness study is really asking like, how can we leverage the power of music? It's cultural relevance for people of African descent. And the fact that we know that it's a preferred stimulus for mindfulness, particularly in those who are beginners um, and you know, uh, create platforms that allow people in the community to access these tools and so that they can develop the sorts of practices that, again, through my own experience with panic attacks and things like that, I know are helpful and can, can stop symptoms. Um, and so a lot of the work is not just like developing the tools that can then be out in the community in an accessible, scalable way. Part of that I'm doing through my startup, Me Freely, but also asking like, what's happening in the brain actually? Like when you're listening to music versus doing mindfulness doing, versus doing music mindfulness. How does that change the way in which the brain is working, not just for stress, but also I'm really interested in this idea of social cognition and behavior and how these tools, and you, as you mentioned, psychedelics as, as one of these tools can be used to really shift the ways in which the brain represents social information. Because I think right now that's gonna be one of the keys for us as a species to survive is like learning 
how to how to more optimally represent and act on social information um, in a way that be, uh, allows us to be more collective, more pro-social, more uh, empathetic. Um, because I mean, we I mean, we can just look at society and and see you know the need for that. I think that psychiatry as a vehicle, neuroscience as a vehicle, um, can really be used to better understand that, and then again put that information into practice. So could you get a little more granular, break it down yeah. for us, is, and how you, first of all, how do you use music to trans, transmit uh, mindfulness skills or interest? Yeah, so there are a couple of different ways, and I won't get into too many of the details, but there are certain parameters in music that can help shift the brain into certain states and moods. And we've known this for a long time, like even in ancient Egypt, they were using music in very specific ways to try to uh, heal it with different frequencies, different tones, modes. Pythagoras also had these ideas that certain modes and scales could could shift, you know, mood. And so nothing, none of that is really new. It's just now we're able to actually use sort of modern tools of neuroscience um, and take a clinical lens to try to better understand that. So the first thing is like, being intentional about how we create the music and putting certain parameters in place that are supportive for mindfulness. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we just put mindfulness instructions on top of that. And, and again, we know that this, this is a preferred stimulus. And so for, especially for people who are starting, it's very difficult. And you, and I'm sure you can, I, I remember when I was first developing a mindfulness practice, even to sit there for three minutes or five minutes mm -hmm. can be such a, like a painful thing. Mm -hmm. But when you have music actually, that's helping the brain along, kind of coaxing it along, it becomes, it becomes easier to start to develop, um, develop those, those practices. And so you know, that's that's a big part of, of, of what we're doing. And then kind of using tools like um, functional near infrared spectroscopy, which is just a way of being, be, basically being able to read our brain activity, EEG is another way. And then asking like, okay, so what's actually happening in the brain? And as we better understand that, can we make and tailor the music even more, you know, to, to assist? Wow. Huh. So as you doing this research, you see how the brain is reacting in a certain way, ways. Are there areas of the brain that specifically tell you where attention is, uh, where, where, where the person's attention is going at that moment? It's a great question. So, I mean, we know that like areas of the prefrontal cortex are really important for um, one's ability to, to direct attention. Um, and so a lot of this is, is data that we're now getting. So I can't speak specifically about how in our particular experiments the data looks because we're, we're now in the process of collecting it but generally speaking there's definitely areas of the brain that we can look at to get a sense of like is a person attending to a certain stimulus and we can do things like eye tracking where we can see where their eyes are going and see what's happening in the brain where the eye when the eyes go you know to, to certain um to certain places uh and there's a lot of evidence already that um meditation and mindfulness actually changes the way that mm. areas like the prefrontal cortex, the precuneus, um, the amygdala are responding to information. And supposedly it, it uh, strengthens the corpus callosum, which combines yeah. the two hemispheres and the relationship between the pretext, no, the pre, prefrontal cortex, I call it pretext for short, <laughs> and the cerebellum, the motor and, and influences. Um, but I would imagine in your research, 
that it's culturally determined also how people are going to react and generationally determined. I mean, in my class on music and mindfulness, you know, and I ask people to to create uh, music that will enhance mindfulness or I call it pre-med, pre-meditation music, because listening to music is very, very low on the spectrum of meditation, but it's, Mm -hmm. but it's a part of it. Um, and, you know, sometimes they come up with, you know, hard four on the floor EDM beats. And I'm asking the class, this is meditative to you? And some of them say, yeah, they, to them in their cultural, you know, context, it's meditative. Yeah. So, you know, certain yeah, genres have, by the way, have been missing. People assume meditation music is all drones or it's Indian flutes, you know, a new age. But what we're doing is using R&B, hip hop and and a soul, in, in, you know, because for certain people, that's a context that they could relate to. Yeah, and what we're doing with, like, the music mindfulness study and what we're doing with Me Freely is really saying, okay, how can we borrow core elements of the, of the African diasporic music, right, which really informed a lot of, if not most or all of, like, popular Western music comes yeah. from the African diasporic tradition. Totally. How can we borrow the key elements of that that are really culturally relevant marry that to the science of what we know actually supports the brain to do certain things in, in terms of mindfulness to create something that's that's unique and culturally relevant and is helping people along this path. Like you mentioned, and, and, and I agree that um, music and music as a, as a kind of um, uh, scaffold for, for meditation, for mindfulness um, is not necessarily the, the, I don't want to even use the word highest form, but there, there are ways that if you're not using music, it can push you into, I think, a deeper understanding. Yes. But again, I think when what we're trying to do is, is meet people where they are yes. and give them the tools to start and begin with the idea that like, if they can begin and stay consistent, then I don't have to sell them on the value of mindfulness. They will know that for themselves right. and they will want to go deeper on their own. Right. Right. It's an invitation to, you know, mm-hmm. and opening the door to them. You're opening the mm-hmm. door. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The question is, do people want the door opened? I mean, what is the, the rep of mindfulness and meditation? And I, not to overgeneralize yeah. you know, a stereotype, but I think the culture at large is more open now to the ideas of meditation. And you have some very prominent... Uh, soul R&B artists that talk about it, whether it's Alicia yeah. Keys, Tina Turner, or mm-hmm. Kendrick mm-hmm. Lamar, J. Cole, and I can go on, RuPaul, yeah, yeah. it goes on and on. And hopefully those spokespeople, I mean, we try to amplify their voices, um, can bring more awareness into a community that could certainly benefit because yeah. <laughs> the the amount of frustrations and uh, and anger that can well up because of what's happening in this country at this moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We really need uh, <laughs> social justice, and we yeah. need tools to be able to stay calm enough to try to get the social justice that's needed. Yeah, I mean, we're under so many different kinds of stressors, I think, especially when you're dealing with um, communities that have been sort of systematically oppressed for literally hundreds of years there's so much generational trauma there's so much being carried in the body and in the mind that these tools are so critical but again 
culturally it, it hasn't it hasn't been accessible you know and it's when you it, historically especially when you think about it, like who are the people that um I think of when I think about meditation and mindfulness or who will I see when I go to my local yoga studio, you know, or uh, my local sangha, right? Like people haven't seen themselves represented or necessarily felt like this is for me. And so this is a big reason why we're, why we're trying to do this in this way and, and trying to get people who are cultural influencers and who, who know how to speak to the culture to say, well, this is actually for everyone. And actually, even in ancient Kemet, they were they were doing these things. So this is not something that's foreign for you. This is a return to something that that is is a part of of your practice, and you can feel at home here. And and all human beings have that birthright to to have these practices that allow them to better understand who they are and and how they're here and what to do with their experiences. You know? Beautiful. That's very very useful way of looking at it and you said something about ancient i didn't get it yeah ancient kemet which is sort of another name for ancient egypt um you know these ideas of mindfulness and sort of the higher mind the lower mind higher self lower self and um certain practices and certain postures that will allow one to reach higher states of consciousness higher levels of vibration you know these these are all things that that were there um, and through a lot of different historical things that we, we're not going to get into, you know, were sort of lost. And so when they reappear in the West, um, you know, it, it, it feels very foreign and like something that is not a part of, of, you know, our birthright in that sense. We're not going to get into it in detail <laughs> on this podcast, but I'd love, I want to hear more about it. Uh, so maybe, you know, after the podcast, because... <laughs> That's fascinating to me, and I, yeah. I love the idea of saying this is ours. It's our tradition. It's not like, yeah. and and when I say ours, I don't mean only people of African descent. I mean that like meditation and mindfulness is a tool that is a human tool. Yeah, and no one should feel like this is for only people from East Asia or only for people of European descent. Right, mm -hmm. like this is something that that we all can tap into just by being human. Um, and, and really, when you look at even spiritual practices of indigenous people, like across the globe, they might not necessarily like have sat down to meditate in that way, but they were all using different tools. Music was always one of those, right. by the way, you know, historically, they were always using these tools to try to understand how to reach different sort of states and then how to utilize those states to heal or to get certain messages or to understand how to better relate to their environment and and so, again, I think it's just coming back to certain very basic things that humans have known and, and in some ways have been lost. Right. And most, if not all, religious traditions have a mystical wing to them. Yeah. Which yeah. talks about union with God. So it dissolves the self. There's mm -hmm. no self. You're just united with God. Divine consciousness. It's in every, every religion. It's got a... At its, at its highest form in every spiritual practice is a disillusion of the ego, a disillusion of the personal sense of self in order to more fully express a higher, more universal, more truthful sense of, of being, which then frees me to relate to the other in, in a truthful, loving, peaceful, you know, harmonious way. 
And that needs to keep getting reinforced <laughs> because there's so much militating against it uh, in, in every age. But yeah. uh, just because it was Martin Luther King's birthday a few days ago, yeah. it was very uh, poignant or pungent. I don't know what the right word is. It's probably <laughs> both. <laughs> that the Supreme Court of the United States, when they call themselves Supreme, uh, they're certainly not a love Supreme Court, uh, eviscerated the Voting Rights Act of 1965, something that I grew up uh, knowing how hard people fought for it, how many people died. White people and black people died for the right to vote, and now they're just destroying yeah. it. It's so you know, uh, frustrating. And then um, on Martin Luther King Day, so many people who you saw them on BLM, they saw them, but you didn't see them say anything about what's going on and bl black votes matter it's just the, the black votes are black lives you know i know you teach meditation and mindfulness and you don't uh evangelize for it right it's you know you, you know let's no. say in your therapy even you don't necessarily push it unless the person i, I don't know because i think it's it's something that one has to really i think want in order to be able to like successfully do because it, it it requires you to be in a different state that, or, 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 or sit in a way that we're not necessarily conditioned to do, right? Where our society really conditions us to go, you know, and, and be in the future. What's mm. the next thing? What's mm. the next thing? Yeah. And all of what's the next thing is based on some priors, right? And so we're always looking forward and looking back and looking forward. And so when someone says, okay, I know you've been doing that for 18 years or 20 years or 30, 40 years, just sit here for 20 minutes. Mm. That's really uncomfortable. And you have to, there has to be something inside you that that wants that, I think, in order to really be able to do it. And and it could be because like you're having panic attacks or some symptom or something that forces you into saying, like, okay, I need to do this, right? But I, I find like if you just talk meditation or yoga to people who aren't there yet, then it's, you know, it's it's it, it doesn't have that impact. And so I, I will bring it up and I will lightly touch on it. But if there's not real interest, then I don't force that issue, you know. That's smart and sophisticated. I wouldn't be that sophisticated. I would, <laughs> I would knock it over people's heads. <laughs> you need this. There's probably a role for that too. There's probably a role for that too. So you don't want to get into any more detail on your on your research Uh we don't want to give any uh, because you're in the middle of it, right? So. Yeah, yeah, I'm in the middle of it, and you know, this these are early days. We're doing pilot studies. I mean, some of the things that like I can say, right, is like when we've um, when we put this out in the community and and have people use it, they they're certainly excited about the fact that one, the researchers look like them, and so there's mm. there's a sort of trust there that, huh, yeah, I'll participate in this study. Um, when people hear that, oh, it's music mindfulness, they're interested in that. Oh, music, okay. And then they hear the music and it's like, oh, this is not what I was expecting in terms of like meditation music. So we know that there's certainly interest in it. Mm. Um, again, this is early data, but on average, you know, people went from, um, in, in our first pilot, um, from uh, meditating on average around 22 minutes a week to about an hour a week. So people are certainly engaging in it in a way that is certainly increasing of the amount of time that they spend meditating, which I think 
is a, is a great start and a yes. great sign. Great. Um, and people also say that, you know, participating in the study has helped shift their thinking about meditation and mindfulness mm. and sort of what those tools um, can offer. And they continue to use some of the practices that they learn through the music mindfulness sessions, even after they're done with the study. And so all those things to me are very, very encouraging. Oh, yeah. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, in, in a year or two, we'll, we'll have even uh, hopefully more, you know, more to say about like what's happening and, and specifically how is it working to help people mitigate their stress? How is it working to help them develop more sorts of um, pro-social forms of cognition? That's so fantastic. I was going to ask you two things. I forgot the first thing. Maybe if I <laughs> ask you the second thing, I remember. We're coming to a close. And um, this mission of bringing music, mindfulness, and music, it's like a Trojan horse. Here's music. And on top of that, you had mentioned on top of the music, you have mindfulness. What does that mm -hmm. mean? Is there a voice telling you like a guided meditation? Or are there instructions that you give them beforehand? How does it work? Yeah, so... In the music mindfulness study, it's pretty much all different forms of guided meditations. So I, you know, I rely on my Vipassana sort of practice. So a lot of it is uh, breath work, focusing on the breath in different places in the body, at the nose, at the, you know, the base of the lung. Um, some of it is, is um, body scanning. So paying attention to various parts of the body and seeing what sensations arise, which go away. Um, then, you know, we, for some of them, we throw in some chakra work and visualizations. Um, and so, you know, we, we kind of throw a few different sorts of tools in there. Um, and part of why we're doing it that way is to kind of see like, what do people gravitate more towards so that we can better tailor it, you know, to fit, to fit the community. Um, with the work that we're doing with my startup, Me Freely, it also looks like affirmations and mantras and and narratives that help people to deal with um to deal with sort of different emotions uh um and and achieve certain certain states that can really allow them to to be their their optimal self their, their true self so you have music playing while a voice is talking about chakras or whatever it might be <laughs> yeah yeah now you know pay attention to your breath relax okay. the face relax yeah. the jaw and there's there's yeah. music wiggle your toes yeah, exactly. And then there's gaps, right? There's gaps like we'll we'll maybe leave like a two, three minute gap and we'll do certain and, you know, we, we do certain things with the music where like while the voice is speaking, there'll be certain certain elements of the music that are more prominent. And then when there's space where the music isn't talking, we'll bring out new elements of, of the music to give sort of a stimulus to, to pay attention to. And so we're doing, you know, creative things with the music itself that help support the mindfulness instructions. But but. The, you have the idea for sure. So, so you, I think you know that at the I Have a Dream Foundation in LA, what we're doing is we're bringing music and mindfulness education to seventh mm -hmm. and eighth graders there. Yeah. And um, with uh, COVID, it's really, you can't be in a room with them, you know, with uh, a drum machine and a keyboard right. and a guitar. So it's, it's done remotely. But it's part of the same mission, right? We're trying to bring. Well, the music education is pretty scarce there. And uh, so we're trying to bring music education and mindfulness both at the same time. So yeah. we're kind of on, you know, you're dealing with adults, right? You're dealing with young adults, older adults, right? Yeah, we're, this time for sure. Yeah, and we're dealing with, with younger kids. Well, 
What you're doing is um, it's so important and so necessary, and uh, it's climate change what you're doing. Um, it's mental and emotional climate change. <laughs> and we need it. We need it. We we need it. The evidence is clear <laughs> when we look at where society is and where it's headed. I mean, even you mentioned the word climate, right? Like, what does it say about our view of ourselves that we're destroying, knowingly destroying our house, our home, right? Like what, you know, if I came to, to your house and you were literally banging down your walls with a hammer and scraping it up and throwing your trash everywhere, you know, I would I would have questions about how you value yourself or what, what your view is of yourself that mm -hmm. you would destroy the place that you live. So what does it say about the the state of consciousness of humans that we are doing what we are doing to the planet, right? We desperately need, um, as you said, like the emotional climate change, because then maybe we could actually address real climate change. <laughs> right. Well, we'll see. It's, it's possible now that, that things, we might be making some progress. I just was reading. So we'll see. Mm -hmm. We'll see mm -hmm. what mm -hmm. happens. Mm -hmm. So as we um, close, is there anything that you would like to add that we didn't talk about? Um, not, I mean, we, we covered so many topics mm -hmm. that I'm really, <laughs> really passionate about. Um, yeah. I just really want to, I guess, highlight... Um, my community, my ancestors, my grandparents, my parents, my sisters, my partner, my ex-wife, my children, um, just all the people that I think, you know, when you read my bio, there's like all these really nice things in there, but it doesn't really mention all of the, uh, like all of the people that really facilitate all of these things happening and, and have been such a, a key part of my, um, my spiritual journey, which informs sort of all the other different things that I've been, you know, um, fortunate to do. So uh, I want to definitely just take that time to 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 thank all of those people and and make sure that it's known that this is really a community a community effort and uh, it's not something that I do alone at all. Well said, and um, it has been incandescent incendiary and invigorating <laughs> as always i can't wait for our next checkup yeah. uh, when we ch check up on each other yeah and, and anything else you want to say about your work or anything we should be looking for or i just want to make sure i'm not oh yeah um so you know people can follow me on aza the messenger um on instagram i'm not like super super heavy on instagram but from time to time i'm on there and i'll do certain lives or just share certain thoughts or share some of my music um you can you know check out my music my last project was go slowly if you just type go slowly aza you can check that out um and then look out for me freely which will be like a platform that literally speaks directly to to what you know what we've been talking about in terms of bringing these sorts of tools um to the community um you know in an accessible affordable scalable way so those are some of the things that people can you know look out for if if, if interested all right well thank you so much dr dr Olsop, aza i really really appreciate you coming looking forward to it and this is you know exactly what you said People are always looking forward. You're always going, <laughs> what's, that? what's next? So I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to say I, I appreciate this moment. 
Definitely. To hear what you have to say. And uh, I hope that you and I can stay in tune. We, we definitely will. And I, I appreciate you even making the time and space for, for me to be here, for sure. All right. Thank you so much. Take care. And so concludes another stimulating conversation. Folks, I got to tell you, we could go out and get sponsors and advertisers for this uh, podcast, but we're focused on the content. This is not meant to be a cash cow. This is meant to be a vehicle to bring certain information, encouragement, and illumination to those of you with a strong, intimate connection to music and also a keen curiosity about meditation and mindfulness and other enhancements to spiritual and mental health. And so to that end, if you know anybody that you think could benefit by listening to this podcast, please let them know that they can find us right here. You know, I would really appreciate that. As a matter of fact, we all would appreciate that. And who do I mean by we all here? Well, I have to thank people that help with this podcast. Taylor Matthews, James Bianco, Sophie Gregg, and the Hannah Bowers. Thank all of you for helping. And thank all of you listening for being the best audience. And until next time, I hope you can stay in a higher octave. And let's you and I... Stay in tune.